and we're in the office and we notice these these people are walking around they've got body cameras on and we thought there's gold in the footage there because actually in that footage is a record of every sale the people who won and closed the people who didn't and so we took a hundred examples of this footage and we were able to decode exactly what the best performers were doing differently to everybody else Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Luke Bataille. Luke is the founder and managing partner at a consultancy business called Sprint Valley. He and they, the team, help organizations embed the change reflex in their business. And so this is how to get people to organizations and individuals in organizations to want to change, to enjoy changing, as opposed to being paralyzed by the thought of change. So what needs to happen to make change happen? You have to have the capability so people have to be able to do the new thing, that you have to create an opportunity so that they can do whatever the new thing is. You have to create a sense of motivation so they have to want to do the new thing. And then you have to be able to put in place a feedback mechanism so that they can course correct towards the new thing. Fantastic stuff. We talk about some real live examples where that's worked in a global retail business that they've worked with although they can't say who it is, and Qatar Stadium, where the challenge was, we've got 60,000 people in the stadium and only 30,000 of them can get a drink or something to eat at half time. How could we enable more of those people to buy a beverage or, or food at half time? And so there's some great examples there, looking at McDonald's and applying that back to the Qatar Stadium. And some great examples of behavioral science and research. Great example where they've got some field-based door-to-door salespeople with body cams, analyzing the body cam video and coming up with some insights, which then improve their sales performance significantly. And then we talk about trust or psychological safety and what has to be true for trust to be in place, benevolence, integrity, and competence. We talk about that. So a fantastic conversation with Luke. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you'll love it. Hi, I'm Luke, Managing Partner at Sprint Valley. I help organizations build the change reflex. I'm passionate about behavioral science and the things that help us do the things we want to do. And I'm also a bit of a geek when it comes to collaboration and innovation process. What is the change reflex? Great question. It's interesting, isn't it? People are quite happy to change their clothes, put on different pair of socks. But getting people to, even if they say they hate a thing... You then say, okay, well, now you need to change a thing. Oh, no, I don't want to change it. So like, I guess you're saying you try and overcome that natural resistance to 
We actually won a European commission to run some research on how organizations structure well to respond to change favorably. And there were really three things that we saw these organizations do especially well to establish what we're calling the change reflex. And it's based on a formula for behavior change, which is that for any behavior that you want to see, there are three things that need to be in place. Capability, people have to have the skills and access to talent that they need. Opportunity, they've got to have the process, resources, but also the social support to do this new thing. And motivation, they've got to be clear on why they have to do something. What is the strategy? What's in it for me? And also they need that feedback to know that they're doing the new thing in the right way so that they can course correct. And for us, the change reflex is about that shift of responding to change with fight rather than flight. And yeah, we're looking at ways of helping organizations build that reflex so that as things change, their instinct is to think about opportunity and what needs to be different rather than how do we protect what is today. How did you end up doing this? My background. How do you end up being the managing partner of a business that helps businesses do this? So my background's in behavioral science. I've always been fascinated by what causes people to do the things they do. And as I mentioned, my other love is sort of facilitation and innovation process. I ran a project with the Etihad Stadium up in Manchester. They had this fabulous challenge, which was that at half time, we had 60,000 fans descend on the stadium and only half of them could ever get to the front of a queue at half time to get a beer and a burger. And I just thought that was a very interesting problem. So we were in there, we were analyzing how queues were forming. We were doing time and motion studies of the people behind the, behind the counters. And we saw very simply, it was a 60 second thing. People walk up, they squint at the menu to work out what they want. They place the order, it gets fulfilled, comes back and you pay. And we thought, well, if we could make that 30 seconds instead of a minute, in theory, we could get through twice as many people. And we thought, well, well, who's brilliant at getting people to make decisions about food quickly? We thought, okay, well, let's go and see how McDonald's, KFC, Burger King, how do fast food restaurants drive consumer behavior and decision-making? And we were able to kind of look through the literature, find some patterns, see how those brands are applying them, bring them back to the stadium. Their spend per head went up 8%, far higher throughput moving through all of the various kiosks. We ended up getting picked up by their American owners and doing similar work over in the States with Yankee Stadium and AT&T and all that kind of stuff. I ended up coming back and writing an article called Why We're Loving It, The Psychology of McDonald's Restaurants of the Future. And I published everything we knew. Five weeks later, it was picked up by one of the directors at McDonald's in India. He said, we've seen your article. We, we'd like to talk. We ended up doing a whole bunch of work with them and everything sort of snowballed from there. But for me, it was that moment of really seeing okay, this world of behavioral science over the last 15 years has got to a point where it's pretty robust. There are some quite good effects and principles that you can use in quite a wide range of situations to change what people do, or at least increase the odds that you'll get them to do the thing that you'd like them to do. And what we're trying to do is look at various ways of applying that into the challenge of transformation, which might be shifting the kinds of customers we're attracting or what they're doing or what they're buying or how long they're staying with us. Or more and more, it's actually around employees. How do we try and create the conditions for change that will maximize the chances we're going to get where we need to get to? So it's been a, it's been a potted journey, but good fun. I find it fascinating. I assume right, if I was Etihad Stadium, right, my example is I've been at the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff to watch some rugby. And 
carnage, right? You get to the front of the queue and you say, I'll have a pint and they pour you a pint. It's like, you don't have time for that. You go to the same, you're a Twickenham and they are put, they're pulling pints all the way through the first half so that you just turn up and you get handed a pint. And you just think, how is it that the people at the Millennium Stadium have not ever visited another stadium to see how other people do it? They're, they're making it up badly from first principles. And then, you know, at least Etihad realized that they could potentially get more people. And so they asked you and you went, well, have you not, have you not studied McDonald's? Let's go do that work for you. And I just, I, I find it, it is hard. There's sort of a lack of curiosity or professionalism. Or is it something else? Are people stuck somewhere else? Is it, am I being unkind? I don't think you're being unkind. I think people end up in a pattern that works well at a time, and then it, but it doesn't scale well. And I think, I think one of the things that we see time and time again is that the way a psychologist thinks about a problem is just different, right? It's just different. So, you know, look at the example of queuing. There's a, for anybody that's interested, there's actually a whole book called The Psychology of Queuing, which if you ever need to fall asleep is a, is a fabulous one. But if you're interested, it's actually fascinating. And the idea here is that, you know, there's various ways of thinking about that system, right? We can make the queue faster. The psychologist's response would also be, what if we just change how it feels to queue, right? It's the, same, it's the same outcome. And so there's plenty of research when we're occupied. Mirrors in the lobby waiting for a lift and yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly right. You know, when we're occupied, queuing feels shorter. When we know how long something is going to take, it feels shorter. And so there's this really interesting toolbox of ways of thinking about problem solving that comes out of psychology that most people technically behavioral science that most people just aren't as aware about. It's a really good example. You know, when you go into a hotel and you have to put the key card in the, in the wall to get the lights on, all this sort of stuff, most people don't realize what that is. And, you know, that's, I did some calculations a few weeks back. That simple intervention saves something like $1.4 billion in energy consumption across the major hotels globally. The response to traditionally from a hotel would be, how do we get people to turn off the lights? The response from a psychologist would be, how do we, how do we make it, how do we remove the decision to even turn off the lights, right? So it's a very different way of thinking about some of these problems. And I think that's what excites me is bringing these two worlds, right? We've got the behavioral scientists that have this fabulous toolkit, think about things differently, but frankly, they always want to do a bit more research. We have to you know, shimmy them along. And then we've got the, on the other side, people who are, we'd call design thinkers or innovation specialists. And they're really good at just rolling their sleeves up and getting started and figuring things out. And it's that, that combination of those two ways of looking at problem solving that isn't easy, but we're enjoying working through. What fascinates me though, is when behavioral scientists have solved a problem and it's in the wild, and you would have to almost not be interested to find it. And yet it's not universally applied. It just blows my mind. You know, oh, we're in the business of running a hotel. And here's a thing that would save us money. And if we're refurbing our rooms and we put these things in, we've done it. So we don't do it. It's like you have to make a decision to do it or not do it. And if you make, I just find it fascinating. It's very, very interesting. And, you know, as I said, I think there's, there are so many different applications of this stuff. And for us, it's really thinking about 
how do we use these tools to better understand what our clients' customers want, need, and you know what shapes whether they go with them or, or a competitor? How do you use it to bring teams together and get them really confident about the action that they need to take? And then the final bits: how do you help people experiment? You know, you can be the smartest behavioral scientist in the world. We work with some of the uh, leading professors in that respect, and even for them. They can't predict what's going to work. They've got a great first step, but you have to be experiment and data-led and try things and then and quickly adapt. What's your ideal client and what's the ideal challenge for you and the team? So we work a lot with multinationals that typically are the, the, the sort of the satellite from you know, wherever our head office is. There's obviously a lot of pressure on them to deliver growth and performance and everything else. And we bring in a fresh pair of eyes to find that opportunity. The other side is on the private equity piece. A lot of what we do is very measurable. And as a result, and we've got a few private equity firms that like to plug us into, into their businesses to help them kind of leapfrog some performance moves. For me personally, the thing I think I get most energy from is our research offering, just because I find it fascinating. And that for me is where Probably, if I were going to think about where the innovation happens across our different services, it happens everywhere. But in the research side, those are usually far trickier problems. And so the kinds of methodologies we have to bring in there have to be new. They have to be new most of the time. And I just find that personally exciting. So, Can you talk about all of your work or is some of it secret? I can't give you names of clients, so I, I'll, but I'll, I, I, can give you, I can give you an overview. So we've been, we've been working with a global retail brand who have been a market leader, and there's a new disruptive market entrant that's uh, nibbling at their heels and causing some problems. And the question is, what is it that we're doing or they're doing that means that we're losing market share to that particular new competitor? And so one of the things that we do there, or we did on that particular one, if you were going to go and bring together some of this particular audience and try and ask them the questions, the problem is, is people make things up, right? It's a bit like GPT. Everybody doesn't, I don't think anybody realizes that how accurate GPT is in terms of a, a mirror of what we're like as people. You ask a question and it will give you an answer. Whether it's real or not is a whole nother thing. And people make up stories about why they did something, because it's not always, it's not always conscious. For the most part, we're working on this system one behavior. It's instinctive. It's very uh, effortless. And we kind of just move through things. And so for us, our whole thing is rather than ask people what they want or what they do, we want to observe the behavior because that's, that's the reality. And so on that particular one, rather than asking them their opinions of X brand versus X brand or you know, whatever it might be, we actually implemented a method called the friendship method. And so if I was going to go with you into your favorite brand and ask you questions, I could build some rapport with you and we could probably get a good conversation going. But are you going to talk to me the same way that you would talk to your best friend? So the friendship method is where we say, we're going to get pairs of people who are best friends. They go out into these different retail experiences and they capture a video diary as they go. And the conversation that happens between two friends is materially different than the conversation they would have with the researcher. So we bring back all of that data, all of that video footage. We code it, analyze it, look for patterns and find the opportunities in that. So a lot more of what we're doing at the moment, in the research side at least, has been about taking video evidence and looking for ways to analyze real behavior rather than people's opinions of what they like and, and don't like. And in that case, was it 
product features? Was it was it brand? Okay. It was everything. Everything from the aesthetics and textures within store environments, language used around product, how pricing was presented, ambience, uh, temperatures, particular audience that they had an interest in were women. And there are some physiological differences in perceived temperature between men and women. So you need to be also sound sensitivity. Women tend to have a, or men tend to have a higher threshold for what sounds loud compared to to women, not everybody, of course, but as a as an average, and all of these things shape somebody's experience, right? And so it's about we come in and we're able to decode all of these layers of what makes something work or not work, but we do it not just from an experience point of view, but from a how people perceive things and how they make decisions. And in that case, is that I remember looking at being at a presentation by the CEO, founder of Optimizely, and he was showing the example of the Obama presidential campaign. And it was like, you know, a series of A-B tests that they had run. And, you know, in the audience, several hundred people in the audience, right? So, you know, it's this image and this image. Which one do you think wins? Like, and the audience get it wrong almost all of the time. And so are those things that you're finding in that retail store, are some of those things counterintuitive? Like, you know, if you spent your entire life immersed in retail, at, you know, high-end branded retail at a particular level. Some of those things, things that you would have instinctively were wrong, or is everything you find sort of, or lots of what you find counterintuitive? Well, some things are good reminders of some brilliant basics that people have lost sight of. Other things are about refocusing people on moments that really have impact that they that they maybe didn't quite realize how important they were. I can't go into specific details on this one, but there are certain moments when you're going and buying clothing that have a disproportionate impact on uh, your experience and how you feel about that purchase. And what we're able to do is say, in this entire journey, if you don't win here, you've got a real problem. And by the way, none of your competitors are doing this well either. So here is a key opportunity that we can evidence really does shift people's propensity to buy, but also there's an opportunity because nobody's really noticing this and thinking about it differently. So that then becomes the insight that sparks some innovation within the client's business about, okay, there's lots of things we can improve, but here's a specific moment we know predicts their propensity to buy. What are we going to do differently here to make this really powerful for them? I think there's a there's another example I wanted to mention, which is one of our private equity clients. They have, this is more on the, the employee side, they have uh, door-to-door salespeople and their effectively performance was stagnant. Their biggest contract was at risk. And we're in the office and we noticed these, these people are walking around, they've got body cameras on. And we thought there's gold in the footage there because actually in that footage is a record of every sale, the people who won and closed, the people who didn't. And so we took a hundred examples of this footage and we were able to decode exactly what the best performers were doing differently to everybody else. And again, if we'd have sent a researcher around to observe them, it would have changed the dynamic. And we had this perfect record of what really happened. And we were able to boil that down into what we call the hits, these seven high income techniques. And then based on that, we could train that across all of their sales staff. They had Their first visit close rate went up 17% and overall sales performance went up 10%. And again, it's just because we're looking at things in a, different way. All these opportunities are there. Sometimes it just takes somebody with a slightly different point of view to to notice. 
Can you say what one of those seven or a couple of those seven things were? Or I, unfortunately, I can't because they're really valuable. Fine. I just I, I was just thinking. You know, I'd recently read the Jolt Effect by the guys who did Challenger Sale, where they had looked at sales performance and you know hours and hours and hours of sales calls to try and tease out the same similar things. This is going to be quite specific to their context, but what's been amazing about it is. Because we had that video footage, we were able to create a video library for their business of examples of different members of the team using these techniques. And you know, for us, the, this particular one won a, a Learning and Development Award. And I think the thing that we did differently there was rather than just put these seven hits on a slide and tell everyone to memorize them, we actually did something called peer learning, where we brought all of these sales teams together we gave them a video example, which was an end-to-end journey of somebody kind of going through and trying to make the sale. And at various points, we paused and we asked those teams, what would you do next? What did you notice? What would you have done differently? So it's all about treating people as uh, experts in their own right, even if they're new in, everybody's got different ways of doing things. It's not that there's one perfect way, but we use that to really help people engage with that learning process and make it their own rather than just make it a one-way kind of training presentation. Well, and not only that, presumably that everybody wears these body cams. And so not only are you able to say, these are the seven things we see, but you can bring your own footage in an ongoing peer learning way. So somebody can coach you and say, look, this is what you're doing right or wrong. And you can do it to each other. And as you were talking, I remember years ago when, when we were at Rackspace and we were in the Management Today Service Excellence Awards program, one of the one of the other finalists or winners of a category that year was a state agency chain. And so they, you know, they had a, they had the manual for this is how the estate agents should be run. And one of the tools that they got, which was the most powerful tool is that they would mystery shop the outlets and, and they wouldn't, it wasn't then they wouldn't beat them up. The the regional manager wouldn't beat them up. They would just send the video footage to the branch and they'd all get a cup of coffee and they'd sit round and they'd see how they did. And they'd beat themselves up quite enough to, you know, impact performance and get everything up to, you know, that sort of somebody walks into the branch, how long before anyone acknowledges them? Does Is everybody ignoring them? You know, are they greeted warmly? Just all of that. Everybody knows what the standard is. It's just reminding people and giving them a measure. And I think what's wonderful about that, and it's, it's the same principle, is it's about depersonalizing the critique. Now, it's not about an individual. This is a team. We're all responsible for delivering this experience. And so what do we think needs to be different? I really, I love that. I think it's great. It's sort of, it's what you're really doing there is you're putting everybody around the same side of the table and you're making the problem something that's objective rather than it being sort of personal. You know, Dom, why didn't you do X, Y, Z? It's, okay, this was this customer's reality. Are we happy with that? What did we do well? What would we do differently? I think that's a, a really powerful way of, getting people to lean into into that without it being too personal. As you're sort of reflecting that back to me, it feels as though what we're talking about there is building psychological safety and and we're taking away the the fear of being wrong. I'm just thinking about, you know, an example I use all the time, which is the red arrows. You know, they come they've either they've either done a training mission or they've they've done a thing and they they land, grab a cup of tea. And, you know, the commander critiques himself first, which gives everybody else the opportunity to overcome that hierarchy and critique and then critique each other. And that's sort of, I think that's true in high-performance teams, high-performance sports teams, definitely. They do a lot of that. 
But in most organizations, you know, nobody gives any less than positive feedback to the boss and people take feedback very personally. So it tends not to happen. You know, when we think about that in the, in the context of the change reflex, that for us is the middle piece, which is about social support, right? If you want to do something or you want others to do something, it's got to be okay and normal to do it. And that whole piece about leadership support there is critical. So, you know, if you'll excuse some profanity for a second, this is the name of it. Mercedes-Benz run what they call fuck-up nights. And a fuck-up night is where they get their team together. The leader goes on stage first and they talk about something that they tried to do and it failed miserably. But the key bit is they then try and turn that into a learning. What's the pothole I can help others avoid in their own work? Once the leader's gone up, then others can kind of join the stage and move, move through them. You know, there's a, there's a formula for trust and it's pretty straightforward. And we do a lot of work where companies have run acquisitions and they're trying to merge cultures. And the, the first thing we say is, you know, yeah, absolutely, this is going to be difficult. Of course, you're going to have resistance. Of course, different groups and tribes are going to have different values. All that's going to be really, really hard. But there's only really one place to start and that's trust. And there's three things that you need in place. Benevolence, I've got to believe you're not going to do me harm. There has to be uh, integrity. I've got to believe that you're going to be a good citizen of the team. And competence, I've got to believe you bring something valuable to the group. And there are ways of helping teams get those core elements on the table. Actually, very, very quickly, we have a team builder kit on our site I'd happily share a link to. But once you have those elements in place, then all that other negotiation when it comes to sort of merging cultures is coming from a different starting point, because at least at the core, we're kind of prepared to work with each other. And we think that's going to be a good thing to do, uh, which is a slightly different way of thinking about it. I tend not to get teamwork stuck on benevolence or integrity, but I do often find myself where people in the room are doubting the competence of their colleagues and they're doubting the competence of the leader because the leader seems it seems not to have voiced any lack of awareness of the competence gap. What do you, what do, you do when you're stuck with something like that? What's in your toolbox? Where, where you don't have competent people in the team. That's typical. I typically find that if somebody goes, X is rubbish at their job, they might be overstating the case slightly, but it's unlikely they're completely off the mark. You know, and that, you know, it's like, why do I think X is rubbish? And why does our boss not see that? That is the reason I'm interested is because I've sat in companies where I've been that person going, why am I surrounded by idiots? And why is it only me who's, who seems to spot that they're actually rubbish at this thing that we're supposed to all be doing? Mm. I think it comes back to, you know, I think trust has been rebranded as psychological safety, but I think, I think it's largely interchangeable. And I think if you're not, creating a culture within a team where there can be fierce conversations and challenging, robust conversations, I think you've got some real issues. There's this management mantra in the West, which is sort of the default, you know, don't come to me with problems, come to me with solutions. And if you look to how teams in manufacturing in Japan or in the East look at things, they call problems without solutions golden eggs. And you join Mitsubishi and in your first week, you will have a quota that every month you have to find new problems that haven't been fixed yet and nobody knows about. And they celebrate that. And they, they reward it. And you've got to think about it. And you go, as a manager, as a leader, 
aren't the problems people don't know how to fix exactly the things you want to know about? And I I think back to your example there, and to me, that smacks of a team where there are issues happening in the team, whether that's around accountability or delivery or competence, that aren't being discussed openly and frankly. And I think that, as always, comes back to how do you build the culture where we're going to celebrate golden eggs? We want to know. We're going to get them. That works in a Kanban style in Japan. You know, the the problems without solutions get on the wall. We pick them up, we move them forward, and then you know we try some things and see what works. But it's a very different, it's a very different attitude. And the work we do when it comes to change is about we've got to shift this to people are allowed to talk about stuff that they're not really sure what to do with next uh, because somebody else might have a view on that, even if it's even if the individual doesn't know how to move it forward. It's that the quality of the managers, quality of the leaders in the organisation. You can't have a great team unless the manager is capable. Or, or at a minimum gets out of the way of the team. <laughs> yes, is self-aware enough. That's the other piece, right? Self-aware. I think that's been, for me, a personal shift in leadership is... Your own self-awareness. Feeling like you've got to have all... Yeah, have, feeling like you need all the... Well, a little bit, yeah. Feeling like you've got to have all the, own, the, all the answers to realising you just need to help the team get the answers. And sometimes you'll have some really valuable steer, and that's great. But who originates it? Is irrelevant. The, the the point is that we we close the gap, we find the way forward, um, and it doesn't have to come from you. And I think that's where a lot of new leaders fail. They think that they're being looked to for all the answers rather than being the person that facilitates those questions getting answered. A long time ago, I had a guy called Gareth Chick on the podcast, and you know, I asked him what he does, and he said, "Look, I coach newly minted SVPs at Google." And I said, "Okay," and he said, "Because at that point." They have now got to a point where they get to ask questions to which they don't know the answer and they don't know how to do that. And that's a completely new thing because up until that point, they were, they were a subject matter expert in the work that the team were doing and they were doing, they were doing less and less of it, but they still knew what that was. And then you get to this level and it's like the team are no longer, I, I can't do the work of the team. Quite. And the, the skills you need are now really quite different. Now it's about collaboration. Now it's about problem solving, you know, at a very high level. And that for us is uh, always fabulous. And you ask what kinds of, what's our favorite work? It's generally the stuff where clients are quite nervous about a question they need to answer or a gap they need to close because they cannot see the way forward. And for us, that core problem solving process, which is at the heart of any innovation method is, okay, well, where is it we're trying to get to? What are the problems holding us back? What's the real question here? There's a wonderful quote by American author Ursula Le Guin. There's no right answer to the wrong question. So a big bit of our work is a big bit of our work is about saying, okay, well, what is the actual question we need to start solving for first? And then, you know, you look at ideas, what are our strategic options? We prioritize and then we get out there and try some things. And I think that's the other piece I see again and again and again. This tendency for perfectionism and this idea that we can plan our way through these big, big changes that need to be made. And you know, when it's complex, the odds that you're going to make the right first move first time are probably zero. It's more important to get started and work out what the next step should be once you're in it. You can't, it's just too complex. There's too many things to predict, you know? So it's about begin and the next it sounds all very a bit woo-woo but 
when you get started, the thing you need to do next will become obvious. But it's always when you're sitting in a room strategizing on the five-year plan or whatever it is, it's kind of nonsense. And it's great. It's great from a it's great from a sort of a directional compass point of view. But in terms of will that actually end up being the plan that works? No, of course it's not going to be because there's just too many factors you've not thought about. So and you can only find those things by doing and getting out there and seeing what matters, right? And that's again the shift in that change reflexes, that bias to action and learning over being right and doing over debating. And it's a lot more fun as well when you give yourself permission not to be right first time. Certainly, I think about this sort of arc where, you know, when you start, when a business is in startup mode, it's definitely making stuff up. And then eventually get some, some sort of, you know, steady state revenue. It might likely then start thinking about some efficiency. And that process of being more efficient somehow then changes the mindset of the majority of the employees. And, you know, I, I'll sit with clients all the time and they say, right, we're going to do some innovation. And somebody will say, well, what's the return on investment? And they go, well, if you give me a million pounds and you do this with it, then I, I know what I'm going to get. But it, over here, that million pounds, I don't know what I'm going to I may as well just be playing blackjack online. And they can't, you know, they're, they're just stuck. And so the organization ends up not innovating at all because they don't know how to start. And, and also they're thinking, about, they're thinking about two things. They're trying to apply one set of logic and framework to something else, which then paralyzes them. There's a great framework called the Kinefin framework, and it talks about how different kinds of problems require different kinds of problem-solving approach. So you've got simple problems where we know the cause and effect relationship. If we do this, then this. That's a kind of apply best practice thing. You've then got complicated problems where things get a little bit messier. There's no clear route. This is about bringing people that have done it before together. And you know, we, good practice is enough, not best practice. Then you've got complex problems. And this is where there's just too many factors at play to predict this. And that's where you've got to get started. You know, I think you know, when you, you think back to that change reflex piece, it's really about saying, okay, how do we get out there? How do we try things so that we can learn as we go rather than imagine this is so simple, we can reduce it to a spreadsheet and, and be right and be accurate. But yeah, it's a, a different way of thinking. You must do quite a lot of it. Do you, are you working then at the senior level in the organization, which is allowing them to come up with a framework to try innovation or, I mean, and what, and what are you doing? How do you, what, what does some of that, some of that look like? Yeah. So when we, when we think about that innovation return on investment question, the way we reframe it is you're, you're either a gambler or you're a fund manager. And so the reality is when we've got something that's complex and hard to predict, if you want to be a gambler, right, and we're going to just plan our way through with one thing we're going to try, then your odds of success are going to be in the balance. If you want to play it like a fund manager where we're going to place lots of small bets, recognize some of those won't pay off. This is the VC model, right? Let's find. If we do 20, one of them will be an oversized success. Right. Right. And so I think for us, it's about, well, what level of risk are you prepared to take? Are you really prepared to put it all on black? And if that's the case, great. But that's the traditional way of thinking about wrestling with uncertainty, right? And so for us, it's about reframing the safe bet as actually it's the riskiest bet because you have one shot to get this right. What we're saying is, why don't we try five, 10, 20 things at a very small and inexpensive layer 
and create some evidence about whether we should move forward with any of these things or not. And so, yeah, we're working with leadership to say, what are the questions we can't answer that if we don't are going to pose an existential risk? And then it's about working with the, the team, the next teams down, the people on the front line who will actually be executing this stuff and helping them work through how to get there. It's the, the IKEA effect, right? You know, we value things we make far more than things we're given. And so if you want to get teams to really embrace shift, they've got to be part of designing how they're going to get there. The leadership decide what mountain we're climbing, why, and how we're going to know if we've got there. But it's the teams doing the work need to set the strategy of how we're going to make it. You know, we found that really powerful. And that gambler thing, it's fascinating when people have to then make an assumption and turn it into a fact, because otherwise they can't make progress. And say, and, he, and, and they persuade themselves that it's a fact so that they can come up with some sort of justification. And, you know, I think that you're right. The, the investment thesis says, okay, what are the things that we might not know? And how do we test all of these? And some things we think are, might be true turn out to be false and vice versa. And that's okay. Because we want to know that really, really early before we spend lots of time and money on, on moving in a particular direction. I think your, your point there about the assumptions, we use a tool called FAQ, facts, assumptions, questions at the beginning of the problem. What do we know? What assumptions have we got? And really pushing people to say, is this a fact or is it an assumption to be, make that explicit? And then what questions do we need to answer to move forward? And I think even just giving people the ability to say, ah, it's actually not a fact. That is an assumption. And then standing back and saying, okay, well, which of these assumptions are most likely to trip us up if they're wrong? Great. Let's go and build, let's go and build some evidence around those then. You know? And so it's, I think, a lot of the time, this, again, and that change reflects the piece around opportunity, giving people the resources and process. People don't have that structure that they're moving through with these kinds of problems. And we come in almost like the operating system that says, okay, well, don't worry about the outcome. Let's just take the first step. What is the problem we're really here for? Then we can move on to what options we've got. Then we can evaluate those. And I think that freeing people up from worrying about how they're approaching it and just get focused on what they need to do next. It just means you get more of their bandwidth kind of being applied to the task at hand. Okay. And look, what is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier? Ooh, I think the early in my career, I had a, a mental rule of thumb, which was get promoted, earn more, uh, without any sense of what direction I was moving which I think is quite normal. I don't think I'm strange in that respect, but there was no sense of where that was headed. And I found myself on the board of a company who are a fabulous company, but totally disconnected from the work that gave me joy and energized me. I ended up deciding to step down from that board and it was the best move I ever made. And it forced me to think about, you know, in an ideal day, what is it you're doing? Are you with people? Are you making things? Are you fixing stuff? Are you selling? Are you persuading? Are you analyzing? And I think, for me, the realization there was, I think your career is really about trying to find a way to get paid as much as possible to do the stuff that brings you the most energy. That really is what Sprint Valley is for me about really staying in that sweet spot of the work we're great at doing, but also the work that we'd probably want to be doing if we weren't being paid anyway. And so I think that's, that's probably the, the big, if I could have learned that, 10 years earlier, you know, I'd probably be 20 years ahead of where I am now. Do you therefore have no plan to retire? Or is it not even on your mind? Is it like, if you're doing something you enjoy doing, just pop your clogs with your boots on? Well, you know, if you're doing something you love, it's not, 
it's not work. Why would you stop? So my, my late dad, he, he had the same thing and he was working all the way up to the end. And he, the idea of retirement was a very strange idea for him. Why, why would you stop doing something you get energy from? And so it's not, that's not an outcome for me in the same way selling the company's not an outcome. It's a, be lovely to have a company that was attractive to buy. And that's certainly something that we're building. But for me, it's about being energized by what you do. That's what matters to me. And bringing around people that bring you energy as well. There's that whole idea of you've got two types of people, radiators and mood hoovers, and your job, your job, I think, is to surround yourself by radiators and hold them close and just make sure you never invite the mood hoovers to any parties. <laughs> uh, Luke, what, what books should people pick up to dig deeper into this topic or others? Two things. One, we are soon to release the Change Reflex report on our website. So I'll happily kind of share a link for that. If you're interested in any of the stuff we've been talking about, really great deep dive into all these topics. And the second one would be it's okay to do a plug. There's a, a, a bi-monthly newsletter we release called Changemakers Anonymous. And this is where our clients share an anonymous challenge with us that they're wrestling with in trying to drive change in their business. And our team give them a, some practical news you can use to get unstuck. And people seem to be loving it. So that'd be another, another good one for some snackable ideas. That's fab. And where's, we'll put a link in the show notes as well. Is that is that off your website? That that's actually so the the change reflex will be from the site, but the change makers anonymous. We have a private client version which goes out, and then a few weeks later, there's a public one which is on LinkedIn, so they can subscribe on LinkedIn. Fantastic, Luke. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting today. Thank you very much for giving us your time. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.